Hello, loyal 5 by listeners. It's your old pal, Mason Weaver. I'm driving around Oklahoma City right now, doing a little bit of last-minute holiday shopping, and it got me thinking, what if this holiday episode is a roundup of the games that I think are the best value for money? So here I present you five games that you've heard me talk about before, obviously, over the years. Colorado, No Thanks, Seven Wonders Duel, Quinto, and The Crew. Those are five games under $20 each. These would be a great last-minute holiday gift. It'd be a great thing just to pull off the shelf and bring to the table with the family this holiday season. But they're all things that I think are exceptional value for money. Not just that they're inexpensive, but that the replay value is so incredibly high that the cost per play is almost negligible. Hope you enjoyed this special holiday episode. We appreciate your five years. Yes, that's right. Five years now of listenership to the five by. I have a great deal of affection for each one of you personally, and I hope that you all have a marvelous holiday season and an excellent new year. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Colorado. German designer Michael Schock has had a lot of games published in the last 25 years. You may have played some of them. Hansa, China, Web of Power, Zularetto, Voldora, Mondo, Richelieu, Coney Island, California. None of these are what I call the new hotness, uh, nor are they perennial favorites, really, or million sellers. But you know what? Michael Schott is a great game designer. My favorite of his games is Coloretto, which is a perennial and probably should be a million seller. Coloretto is a set collection card game. And yes, of course it's a set collection card game. Do I ever talk about anything else? I'm insufferable, I know. Ostensibly, it's about collecting chameleons of different colors, but of course the theme is totally irrelevant here. You can only do one of two things on your turn. Draw a card from the deck and place it in one of the face-up rows, or take one of the face-up rows and place the cards in front of you. Each row can only have three cards in it. Uh, Once you take a row, you're out for the round. But the twist here is that you can only score three color sets of the seven available in the deck. Beyond the three color sets you choose to score positively, all of your other cards count against you. And that's the game. So why is it fun? Because of the emergence. I've talked about emergence before, but Colorado is one of my favorite examples of a game that is just more than it seems. If you don't know, emergence is sort of related to unintended consequences, but in good game design, it often presents as strategies and gameplay that are really outside anything explicitly outlined by the rules. For example, if a game's rules say that on your turn, you and your opponent each roll the die for combat, whoever has the highest roll wins. That conflict is not emergent, that's explicit. But if the conflict is a product of deliberate decisions a player makes as a result of their opponent's decisions, that's emergent gameplay. There's nothing in the rules of Colorado that says you should lay off colors your opponent's trying to collect into rows with things that you know will actively harm them, but that's how you win at Colorado, and that's emergence. There's a strong push-your-luck element in Colorado as well. Will someone else take the cards you want? How long should you wait to pick them up? Even if everyone else has finished the round, you're often left with painful decisions. Do you take only the two cards in the last available row, or do you draw a third, which you'll have to take along with them regardless of whether or not you want it or if it's harmful to you? Taking strategic losses in Colorado is emergent in and of itself. Playing solely from the perspective of the rules, you wouldn't ever choose to take cards that might actively hurt your score, but a little bit of light min-maxing in this game is often very much to your advantage. Colorado is simple enough that anyone over six years old could easily learn and understand the rules. But understanding the emergence strategy necessary to win Colorado is significantly harder. Like many of my favorite games, winning Colorado is mostly about paying attention to your opponent's choices, and not just focusing on maximizing your own points. Besides the color cards, there are also some plus two cards that give you straight points, and some wild cards you can save until the end, and then add to sets of your choice. 
You can only score a maximum of six cards in a set, so ideally you'd have six of three different colors and none of anything else, but that's not going to happen. You're going to have to take some cards you don't want, but you should always try to minimize any sets beyond three colors. Better to have just one of each extra color and lose four points than end up with a bunch of cards of just one fourth color and get slammed with a big chunk of negatives. The sets in Coloretto are progressive, so the more cards of one color you collect, the more points each of those cards is worth, positive or negative. If you've not ever played a Michael Schott game, I'd call this style a cross between Dr. Kinesia and Phil Walker Harding. Set collection games with slightly odd or counterintuitive scoring systems are a hallmark of all of his work. Michael Schock is really into, a little isn't enough, some is just right, but don't get too much because it's actively harmful. Coloretto comes in a very small box, and the card quality is great. It's an abacus spiel game, so of course it is. It can usually be had for under $15, but there's a really cool 10th anniversary edition from 2013 that uses the beautiful art from the Russian edition. This anniversary edition is a little bit difficult to come by and isn't in any way necessary to own and enjoy Coloretto, but if you like the game, I think it's well worth the effort and expense. One of my favorite things about Coloretto is how simple it is to teach to new players. It's often my go-to game to throw in my bag or back pocket when going somewhere that I might have the opportunity to get a quick game in. I've played Coloretto with hardcore 18xxers and people who've never played anything beyond Monopoly, and both groups loved it. Coloretto is also available to play for free on Board Game Arena, so you can try before you buy if you're a cheapskate like me. When Meg and I play online games and Skype with friends across the country, Coloretto often gets played. Everyone knows it well enough that you can chat while you're playing, and it's quick enough to play multiple times without getting bored. So who should buy Coloretto? People who love set collection card games. People who like small box games. People who like games that scale well across multiple player counts. And people who like casual, interactive games that are enjoyable to players of all skill levels. I give Coloretto 7 out of 7 rainbow chameleons laid off on a row otherwise full of your opponent's colors. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about No Thanks. Board gamers talk a lot about family games, but we don't always focus on games that you can actually play with your family. I'm assuming a lot of our listeners are probably pretty invested in board games as a hobby, and probably have a lot of family members, especially extended family members, who very much are not. If that's you, and you spend any time at all with groups of people who aren't board gamers, I can heartily recommend Thorsten Gimler's 2004 small box card game, No Thanks. No Thanks is a dead simple to learn push your luck card game. It's a small deck of cards marked 3 to 35. You shuffle up, remove 9 cards, and give everyone 11 mini poker chips. To win, you do want lots of chips. You don't want lots of cards. One at a time, you flip the cards over and either place one of your chips on the card or take the card and all the chips on it. When all the cards are gone, your chips are worth positive points and the numbers on the cards are worth negative points. We play with our chips in a bag so you don't have to hold them all the time. Keeping your chip count secret is really important in No Thanks. One of the best parts of playing is watching an opponent be forced to take a really high card when they run out of chips and it never fails to get a groan from the player and a big laugh from the rest of the table. No Thanks is a teach in five minutes and play for hours kind of game. No Thanks is mostly about pushing your luck and deciding when a high card is worth taking based on the number of chips you'll get with it. There are a lot of different strategies, and a fair amount of luck obviously, but No Thanks succeeds largely because of one of my favorite aspects of games, which I've talked about before at some length, Emergence. As a quick reminder, Emergence in Games is complex gameplay and strategy that arises from a structured set of rules, but isn't actually outlined in the rules. I sometimes hear Emergence referred to as metagame, but that's not exactly right. Think of it more as consequences of player actions not laid out in the rule set. For example, 
Nowhere in the rules of no thanks does it say that you should take strategic losses to mitigate future potentially worse losses, but it can be a really strong strategy. Nowhere does it say that you should purposely take a card to block an opponent from making a run of three, but I've done it and gone on to win by doing it. Simple games that create space for complexly emergent interactions between players are usually in my category of the new classics. No Thanks is one of her 88-year-old grandmother's absolute favorite games. She is, by nature, a gambler, and so is willing to take huge risks, which sometimes pay off in a big way. By contrast, when playing No Thanks, I am extremely risk-averse, and so I don't often win, but I don't often lose either. Mimi will regularly let a high card build up chips early in the game, and then take them all before someone else has the chance to, even if it's a poor chips-to-points ratio. Then, two or three turns later, she'll do it again. It's a big risk, but often puts her in a position of having a nearly unlimited supply of chips for the rest of the game, while starving the other players and forcing them to take cards with no reward, sometimes multiple turns in a row. It's brutal, but it's risky. When she wins, she wins big. When she loses, she loses big. Part of the magic of No Thanks is that it's a simple structure which can support a wide variety of playstyles at the same table. I think No Thanks is best with four players, though five is a close second. The game comes with 55 chips, which allows up to five players to take 11 each. I don't think it would be a problem at all to play with 6 to 8 by simply getting a single extra chip, which you could even use as the first player marker, and then simply splitting the chips up, playing with 7, 8, or 9 chips each depending on player count. At higher player counts, the game will become less strategic, but if you're looking for a heavy 8-player strategy game, you are probably talking to the wrong person. I will say that as much as I would like it to, No Thanks just doesn't work at 2-player, and it's not really much fun at 3. An interesting meta element in No Thanks that can lead to emergent decisions is who you're sitting next to. If the person on your right tends to be a wild card, taking things they shouldn't, making erratic decisions, that sort of thing, it can really shape the choices that you make. I tend to play more cautiously if I know the person who's going before me every time is prone to make rash decisions, but if they're very risk-averse, I tend to push my luck as much as possible. Now, No Thanks is cheap, about $12 in the current Mayfair edition. The cards and chips are fine quality, and the box is one of my favorite sizes, about 3 inch by 5 inch, or what I think of as the Amigo card game size, about the same as a 6 Nimit box. I have a long-term plan, never realized, of course, of getting someone to illustrate big, beautiful, tarot-sized No Thanks cards, and then playing with big poker chips and nice velvet bags. I'll let you know if I ever actually follow through with this. I probably won't. If you want to be really cheap, you could just make your own copy with note cards and pennies. So who should buy No Thanks? People who love social games, but not social deduction. People who love bidding and secret information. People who want to push their luck and have a very thick skin for glorious failure. And people who want an easy-to-teach, quick-to-play pocket game for family, co-workers, or strangers at a bar. I give No Thanks 55 out of 55 delicious tiny poker chips sliding along the table toward my waiting fist. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Seven Wonders Duel. We're a two-player household, so I pay pretty close attention to player counts. They matter to me very greatly. We're also at the point of being almost completely out of board game storage in our house, so I'm always looking at box size as a function of a game's value in my life. So Seven Wonders Duel is, in a lot of ways, the perfect game for us. Small box, easy setup, two-player only, meaningful decisions, almost infinitely replayable, and emergent behavior against a regular opponent. Antoine Bowser's original Seven Wonders came out back in 2010, and it was one of the earlier games we played quite a bit when we got into hobby board gaming. It introduced the idea of pick-and-pass card drafting to us, and even though the two-player setup seems to be somewhat polarizing amongst other players, we liked it then and frankly still like it now. So when a two-player-specific version of the game came out in 2015, we were on it. Three years later, it's still one of our most played games, and I can't see ever not wanting to own it. 
It's one of the few games that either Megan or I will always play on a weeknight, no matter how exhausted or burnt out we are from work. A lot of my love for Duel comes from its intertwining knots of variability, replayability, those are two different things, we can talk about that some other time, and the shifting paths to victory. There's no dominant strategy to win. It's one of those, do a little bit of everything, but make sure you do it better than your opponent kind of games. In Seven Wonders Duel, you take turns picking from a sort of overlapped pyramid thing of cards on the table. Some are face down, some are face up. When you take a card, it gives the other player access to the card that was beneath it. So some cards have resources on them, which you can use to buy future cards. Some cards give you money, which you can also use to buy future cards. Some cards give you points, some cards let you move forward on the little military track. If you let your opponent get too many red military cards, they sack your city and you lose instantly. If your opponent lets you take too many green cards, your advanced sciences automatically win the game. There are multiple threads of tension pulling at you in every direction throughout Seven Wonders Duel, and I never get tired of playing it. So at the same time, all these other decisions are happening. The four large wonder cards next to you still need to be built. By using your turn to take a card from the pool and slip it underneath a wonder, provided that is that you can afford the wonder, you've built that wonder and then get a reward. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's points, sometimes it's extra building resources, and sometimes it is an extra turn. So timing out when you're going to build the wonder is really tough and can be a turning point in the game's arc. You're always racing a little, as only one of you will be able to build all four of your wonders, because there can only be seven wonders total, get it? There's this significant tension between progress and denial for both players. You want to get all the good stuff for yourself, but ignoring what the rival city is doing, building and buying is fairly critical if you actually want to win. At the beginning of the game, you get to look at all the science progress tokens, and you should draft your wonders based on what's available. Knowing from the start which tokens are available usually influences the wonders that I pick. There's a lot of these kinds of choices to make in Seven Wonders Duel. Now you could absolutely play and enjoy the game without taking any of these emergent or interdependent elements into consideration. But, when you've played it dozens and dozens of times with the same person, the meta really becomes part of the game. At this point, I know which wonders and which strategies Megan favors, so part of our shared experience of playing Seven Wonders Duel together is blocking each other at every step. The meta has kept the game fresh because it forces each of us down paths that we wouldn't otherwise choose. Now, the long-term replayability of a game within the same group is not something that I talk about very often, but I do think it's a big part of what keeps me coming back to Seven Wonders Duel. In more static games, or games with zero input randomness, two people playing the same game over and over together can fall into ruts that sap the joy out of the experience. There are games that we haven't kept because that's exactly what happened. But because the wonders, progress tokens, and resource cards will never come out in the same order, and I mean never, like it's not mathematically possible for you to play it enough times for that to ever happen in your entire lifetime, there are always new pathways to forge and new choices to make in the tug-of-war of Seven Wonders Duel. The box size for Duel is my favorite, Cosmos 2-player, or 8x8 inches or 20x20 centimeters. The cardboard coins, tokens, and military track are all high-quality linen finish. For some reason, though, the cards, at least in my edition, are not high-quality. They were so badly warped that I had to request a replacement set from Asmodee. The replacement set was also warped, so I chose to sleeve them. I went with Fantasy Flight Mini Euro sleeves, which are very thick and feel great and definitely worth the money. Unfortunately, they're also about 2mm too long for every card. Because this was totally unacceptable to me, I went to the trouble of trimming every single sleeve after I had the cards in them. Was this a huge amount of work? Yes. Was it completely worth my time? Absolutely. Now, Seven Wonders Duel also has an expansion called Pantheon. I was incredibly excited when it came out because we loved the game so much, but after a few plays, it stays in the box and I've honestly considered trading it off. It certainly adds another layer of gameplay, but not in a way that either of us really enjoyed at all. I wouldn't advise purchasing it until you've played Seven Wonders Duel dozens of times, and even then I would try before you buy. 
Despite my component issues, Seven Wonders Duel is of really good value, usually around $25 anywhere hobby games are sold online or out there in the world. So, who should buy Seven Wonders Duel? People who mostly play two-player games. People who like card drafting. People who like building up resources. People who like indirect conflict. And people who want the flavor of ancient history without the cognitive load of a complex civilization game. I give Seven Wonders Duel 7 out of 7 towering pillars of stone erected to honor the gods of our long-dead cultural predecessors. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Quinto. Hobby gaming sometimes seems like an endless miasma of, which edition is this? And, no, the French version has different rules. And, yeah, but that's actually a reworked version of a Kinesia card game from 97, but with a different bidding system. There are lots of games with similar titles, games that are sequels or reissues with indistinct titles, games with the exact same titles that have nothing to do with each other, games with the same titles save for the newer game's edition of an exclamation mark, and games with purposefully unique spellings of titles in a publisher's attempt to disambiguate and distinguish, which mostly results in more confusion and makes them difficult to Google. Quinto, Q-W-I-N-T-O, published by Nuremberger Spielkarten Verlag in 2015, is a tight little roll-and-write game, not to be confused with any of the three other games called Quinto, Q-U-I-N-T-O. One of those is forgettable and probably junk, one is a forgotten 90s Sid Saxon card game with publisher butchered rules, and one is the magnificent 1964 3M bookshelf title that's basically just math scrabble. Highly recommend that one, uh, one of my favorite 3M games. Roll and write games, and I prefer the term pencil games, have hotted up in the last three years to the degree that I'm largely bored by the announcement of new ones, especially very complex ones. I think that speaks to a larger personal problem I have. The more someone tells me I should like something, the more I want to hate it. Probably correlated to my low-level oppositional defiance, but, you know, who knows. I do still love a clean and simple pencil game that gives me choices, but doesn't ask me to remember a complex rule set or scoring system. Quicks, available pretty much everywhere, is a great example of this kind of direct and easily teachable pencil game. Quinto borrows some ideas from Quicks, they are both from the same publisher, but for us, Quinto does it better, so let's get into why. Quinto is three dice and a piece of paper. You're rolling the dice and choosing to put the summed rolls in one of three rows, red, yellow, or blue. If you roll the red and blue dice together, you can put the sum in a spot on the red or blue lines. If you roll all three, you can put the sum on any lines. Numbers have to run ascending left to right, and the game is over when you fill two lines. You won't. Or crap out by not being able to place four of your rolls. This is how the game is going to end. There's not a lot of emergence in Quinto, and for once I think that's actually a good thing. Everyone has the same information and most of the same opportunities. On your turn, you must write down the sum of your rolls. On everyone else's turn, you have the choice to write down their roll. Now, in a roundabout way, especially for a dice game, it's almost perfect information. You're free to look at other people's score sheets, though we choose not to, and all players have access to every roll, provided they've made good choices and have space available on their sheets. I do think there's a slight learning curve to Quinto. You have to choose every turn which combination of dice to roll, and those early rolls are often critical in setting up and spacing out your scoring opportunities. At the end of the game, you get points for each number you filled in, and extra points if you filled the line completely. You also score for key columns completed in addition to the rows. There are a couple of different paths to points in Quinto, and players who excel at order and planning should do fairly well. I like that Quinto is a dice rolling game that's not particularly exciting. Now, it's fun and challenging and easy to pick up and play, but it doesn't really require a ton of emotional energy. It's often our go-to game when we just can't think of anything else to play. Because it's quick and very rules-light and still actively engages your mind, we found it to be a great stress reliever. In Quinto, Bernard Locke and Uwe Rapp have designed a game that seems so simple that it feels like it's not designed, which for me is usually a sign of a good game. I've played a lot, and I mean a lot, 
of amateur-designed pencil games, and far too often they're filled with extensive dice mitigation options. Quinto is short enough that I don't want reroll or plus one options to use. I've not kept many of the more complex pencil games we've tried, partially because they often overstay their welcome, have too many extra components, or just pack so much into a small sheet that it ruins everything I like about the genre. I really thought I wanted medium-weight Euro-style pencil games, but apparently I was wrong. I'm sure other people love them, but they've all just left me largely indifferent. Quinto shines in a space that lets me use my higher functions for choice and light strategy instead of just trying to remember a bunch of rules. Quinto has recently become available in the U.S. from Pandasaurus and is widely sold for between $10 and $15. It comes in a little box, and the sheets aren't very large, so we mostly play with laminated copies of the custom-made score sheets posted on BoardGameGeek. You could, of course, just laminate the sheets that come in it, but I prefer printing on cardstock before laminating, as it tends to wrinkle less and hold up a little longer. So, who should play Quinto? People who like Quicks. People who like Sudoku, which I suppose are both just people who like putting numbers in order, and people who like casual games to share with coworkers in the break room, family at the holidays, and strangers in places that Twilight Imperium or Age of Steam just won't fit. I give Quinto, three out of three primary colored dice that might be a slight problem in low light for our color vision impaired listeners that I forgot to mention until just now, but that I think are probably okay in most normal lighting situations. I'm Mason Weaver, you can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine. If you're a regular listener, and I know you are, you'll remember that Megan and I love trick-taking games. I've talked about a few in the past. Stiekeln in episode 12, German Whist in episode 47, Oh Hell in episode 55, and Schnapsen in episode 82. I've played a few modern trick-takers that I like fairly well. Diamonds, solid but fiddly. Pups, cute but nothing new. Fox in the Forest, tight but I don't really like special powers. Uh, Plums, genius, but very hard to wrap your head around. Potato Man, excellent, but hard to obtain. And Spires, actually pretty damn great, and I really do need to cover it someday. Even though I don't really buy new games very often, and I'm definitely anti-hype and opposed to the cult of the new, the crew's early buzz this year as a cooperative, progressive trick-taking game had me interested. It won the Kennerspiel de Jar this year, which is surprising given its low price point and small box size, in part because of the win and the associated demand, I assume. Cosmos cranked out English-language copies of Thomas Singh's new game, and they're finally widely available. I paid about $15 for it, but you could probably get it for as little as $12 if you were making a big order from an online game store and hit the free shipping threshold. But you shouldn't do that. Just pay the $6 shipping or pick this up from your local game store. So anyway, we got it, and we played about halfway through the included 50 missions. What's the deal with it? I think it's important for you to know that we're only playing it two-player, and that we're a couple, and that we're each other's primary gaming partners, and that we've been playing trick-taking games together and against each other for almost 20 years, and that we really like trick-taking games. I tell you this because it colors my feelings about the crew, but also I don't want you to expect something out of the crew that you and your group don't have to give to it. Megan and I love this game. The crew is, I think, the first game I've ever played where the trick-taking itself wasn't the game, but the method by which the game is played. Another way to think about that is that the trick-taking isn't the software, it's the hardware. The actual game here is the missions in the book. They're challenges that you beat by playing a trick-taking game in a certain way cooperatively. In the crew, the goal is not get all the points or get none of the points like other trick-taking games. The goal changes every hand. It might be this player wins these particular cards in a particular order, or no player can win a trick with a nine, stuff like that. Now, if you've never played a trick-taking game before, that's okay, too. The early missions in the book warm you up to the rules and concepts, sort of video game style. They're very simple, and they get progressively more difficult and incorporate new concepts over time. Since you can play them again and again until you get them right, it's sort of impossible not to figure it out and move forward. 
Of course, the downside of that is it reduces your score in the end. We're playing the crew two-player, so we're using the two-player variant, which I usually hate in a game, but I think it actually works here. There's a half-hidden dummy hand on the table, and the player who's in command for the round controls it. I do think the two-player rules could be slightly more specific on a few points, but since it's a co-op, we've opted to err on the side of whatever is just more difficult. We've hit a few snags where a mission was simply impossible to complete because the cards we needed were underneath the dummy hand in a way that prevented us from playing them, but it does nicely simulate a human player making a mistake, which is pretty hard for an AI to do. So far, at least, we have a solid score with only a few missions we've had to play twice. We are treating the game as a cooperative puzzle experience, and I think once we finish, we may play back through with the more difficult three-player variant in the rulebook, which removes one of the card suits. At two-player with four suits, you have ample opportunity to slough off bad cards off-suit to get what you want, but with only three suits, I think that will become significantly more challenging. Part of the appeal of the crew right now, for me, as at least the U.S. is basically still in quarantine, is that it offers something new and different every game without having to take on new rules or new information. The goal changes, but the structure is still the same. The strategy changes, but the tools to achieve it are still the same. It's both comforting and stimulating, and is exactly what I've been looking for this summer. I've had almost zero mental energy to learn any new games this year, but living in hell will do that to a person, I suppose. So the low rules overhead combined with new challenges every round have been especially satisfying for us. But Mason, you say, this is a ripoff. After I play the challenges, the game is worthless. Oh yeah? Is Super Mario Bros. 3 worthless just because you beat it when you were 10? The crew will be infinitely replayable and future-proof, simply because of the fact that generating user content for it is accessible and costs nothing. There are already 18 new challenges that Cosmos put out this year. That's one Spielbox promo and five chapters of the Dimios adventure. And the KSDJ win is going to generate strong sales, which is going to generate expansions. I would expect, and this is purely speculation, another mini-expansion for Essen this year at least, and maybe a full-box expansion with new missions and new tokens next year. People on BGG are already making their own challenges, and online play is coming incredibly soon. There are already a couple of cobbled-together implementations on the web. Check the show notes for links to all of this. And Board Game Arena is alpha-testing their version. The crew is perfect for online play, because there shouldn't be any talking about what you have in your hand anyway. So, who should play the crew? People who like trick-taking games, people who like cooperative puzzles, people who like limited communication games, and people who like astronaut stuff. I give the crew 50 out of 50 outer space-themed missions that I didn't really bother going into here because I'm totally indifferent to the theme, but some people seem to like it, so good for them. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Discount Compost, as well as on BoardGameGeek as Breakfast Core. Wash your hands and wear a mask. You've been listening to The Five by... Follow us on Twitter at 5bygames. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5bygames. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening.